This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Nick McClellan, a journalist and correspondent for Ireland's business magazine in Fiji, joined me to talk about politics in the Pacific region as well as Pacific Australia relations. We also talked about the ongoing nuclear legacy in the Marshall Islands. Then, Dr Emma Shortus, a historian based at the EU Studies Centre at RMIT, joined me in the studio to talk all things American politics. And finally, Timothy C. Weingard, a professor of history and political science at Colorado Mesa University, joined me to talk about his new book, The Mosquito, a human history of our deadliest predator. I am absolutely delighted now to have back on the show Nick McClellan, who is a journalist and a correspondent for Ireland's Business Magazine, which is a publication in Fiji. Nick McClellan is uh, quite well known for his reporting in Pacific issues not just around um, climate change, which is something we will be discussing, but also politics in general over there, and uh, as well as historical issues that are still relevant in the Pacific, uh, such as the nuclear testing that was occurring um, in the mid-20th century and the effects of which um, are still felt very keenly today in places like the Marshall Islands. And we're going to be talking about all of those things and more today. So, um, I and I also should mention that uh, Nick's book, um, the one that I discussed with him, gosh, it must have been over a year ago now, um, is Grappling with the Bomb, Britain's Pacific H-Bomb Tests. And I highly recommend um, that you read that if you're interested in this issue. And also you can listen back to our previous chats on our podcast. So without further ado, I welcome back to the show, Nick McClellan. Hi there, Nick. Good morning, Amy. How are you? Morning. I'm great, thanks. How are you? Great, great. Now, it's great to have you back, and I'm so pleased that we get your insights, given that you spend a great deal of your time actually in um, the Pacific region, working from um, Fiji mainly, I believe, but of course you do travel around and meet with um, various key people um, in the issues that you report on and, and also research. But let's get first of all, to what is probably front of most people's minds when they hear about the Pacific uh, issues, and that would be, I guess, Australia's poor form in terms of our neighbourly behaviour, which um, has really been lacking in, well, gosh, a number of years, I've got to say. But uh, this year, certainly, things did come to the fore at the Pacific Islands Forum, which I believe you were actually at. Um, so I just want to understand first up, what was the um, response from the leaders in from the Pacific regions and, and the, the nations that make up the Pacific to Australia's um, constant pushback, really, and watering down of the statement, the joint statement that they made um, around issues like climate change? Yes, as you say, I attended the Pacific Islands Forum this year um, as a reporter uh, that was held in Tuvalu, which is one of the smallest Pacific countries. It's a um, low-lying atoll nation, about the nine atolls, uh, with a population of just 11,000 people. So they're very conscious of um, uh, climate change because of uh, not just future concerns, but the immediate impacts for example, on agricultural production, on water security, and so on. Um, and so the annual leaders' meeting of the forum, which brings together 18 countries, Australia, New Zealand, and 16 island countries, 
um, is a forum where the Pacific can really raise its concern with Australia. And there are a number of issues that divide Australia, even though uh, the Morrison government is very much uh, talking about a Pacific step-up, um, a greater engagement with the region. Um, there are fundamental differences on climate change. And that was very evident um, this year in Tuvalu. The leaders retreat where the leaders, prime ministers and presidents go together into a room, um, just the leaders themselves without a lot of officials and things. Um, that retreat went on for 12 hours this year, um, which is much longer than normal. We were still hanging around at 9.30 at night waiting for them to come out. And one of the problems was that Scott Morrison um, was trying to push the Pacific to take up positions on climate change that, frankly, everyone else in the room, including New Zealand, uh, Jacinda Ardern, Prime Minister Ardern, were opposed to. Um, and the forum works on consensus. So trying to forge a consensus between the interests of uh, small island developing states and the interests of Australia as one of the largest coal exporters in the world, one of the largest fossil fuel exporters in the world, um, it's obvious that forging that consensus is pretty hard work. Indeed. And what were some of the sticking points specifically that Australia was really pushing back on that everyone else was in agreement with? Look, there are, I suppose, quickly, there are five key issues. And just to elaborate on, I think it's important to, to realise that, you know, Australia is on the different sides to the Pacific in most of the global climate negotiations on, on key policies. One of the, the first ones is, is issues like climate science. Um, in recent times, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the global science body that looks at these issues, has put out a number of important reports. Last year on uh, climate warming at uh, 1.5 degrees, and uh, this year a, a major report, special report on the oceans and the cryosphere, um, looking at uh, uh, the, the impact on the oceans from uh, uh, global warming. And all of these say that we need to be moving below 1.5 degrees of warming. That's above pre-industrial levels. Now, we're nowhere near that target. The current Paris Agreement on Climate Change has us pointing towards three degrees of warming. So we're, we're heading in the wrong direction. But we've had government ministers uh, in recent times fudge to say as to whether they believe in the science. Uh, David Littleproud, National Party member who's currently the Minister for Water for National Emergencies and Disasters, was interviewed uh, earlier this year um, after the forum saying, quote, I don't know if climate change is man-made. I haven't an opinion one way or the other, but I don't think it really matters. Well, the climate science really matters to our Pacific neighbours because they uh, are really feeling current impacts and are very worried about future impacts. The second big difference, obviously, is coal. And as you mentioned, the Australian diplomats and the Prime Minister himself tried to scrub any reference to coal out of the, the Kainaki Declaration. That's the, the formal communicator that came out of the forum about climate change. Um, all of our Pacific neighbours are calling for a much more urgent and rapid transition on coal, on gas, on other fossil fuels towards renewable energy. And, um, you know, declarations that have come out of Pacific meetings recently talk about a much more rapid transition than Australia is considering. So that's a fundamental sticking point. The third is, is around what's called NDCs, Nationally Determined Contributions. 
that's the jargon that's used under the Paris Agreement, um, which sets out what we're willing to do. You'll have heard the Prime Minister several times say that Australia's willing to reduce its emissions by 2030 by 26%. And we'll do that, quote, at a canter. Well, countries want more. Um, they want much more urgent and rapid transition away from uh, renewable energy, much more urgent reduction of, of um, uh, emissions. Now, this is all voluntary under the Paris Agreement. That's why they're called nationally determined. So they want Australia as a nation to determine much more urgent and stronger, stronger targets. And sorry, before we get on to the next one, what was the response to the Kyoto carryover credits issue that Australia is really the only um, nation engaging with? Well, that was wiped out of the out of the communique. Um, you know, you had a had a situation where previous communiques, Pacific Island countries have called on Australia not to use carryover credits. These are technical accounting units almost um, that were accrued under the Kyoto Protocol which is the international agreements that's the predecessor to the current Paris Agreement on Climate Change. Now, we, through um, land clearing uh, achievements and so on, have accrued, you know, quite a lot of carbon credits. Um, what the problem is, is that Australia wants to use these credits for its 2030 target. Now, most developed countries, the United Kingdom, Germany, Denmark and others, have said that they won't use Kyoto-era uh, credits um, to achieve their 2030 targets. We're one of the few developed countries that's willing to do so. And um, our neighbours, understandably, are, are shitty because it's using old accounting tricks rather than uh, reducing new emissions, new emissions from coal plants, coal-fired power plants and so on. And you know the government's very reluctant to do that. So this is a sticking point. Mm -hmm. The other sticking point related to these NDCs um, the, the nationally determined contributions, when you look at them, most countries in the world need assistance to meet their targets. They need things like um, technology transfer to assist with going renewable. They need capability build-up uh, in their own government or community to address the problems of adaptation. And above all, they need climate finance. And when you look at all the NDCs that were signed out of 180-odd countries, 136 of them require assistance like this. And that's not surprising. These are all developed countries. Indeed, some are the least developed countries. Developing countries need that assistance from the big OECD countries, United States, Australia, and from China and other big industrialised nations. You know, countries like Tuvalu and Fiji and others need assistance to make the transition to a carbon-free future. Now, Australia is refusing to give proper climate finance. Our government uh, has announced that they won't contribute to the replenishment of what's called the Green Climate Fund. There's a global mechanism um, that provides funding for adaptation, adapting to the effects of climate change, and for mitigation, reducing the, effect, uh, the emissions. Um, so the government in Tuvalu pledged $500 million towards this action over five years, but divided by 16 countries, and then they found out that it all comes out of the aid budget. So we're going to be cutting resources allocated to health, to education, to women's empowerment, to agriculture, to meet our climate obligations. And people were really cranky about that, as you can imagine. Mm, absolutely. Um there, certainly, I think there's been quite a lot of criticism uh, in Australia and overseas around our um, supposed step-up 
policy in the Pacific um, and the $500 million climate change and oceans package. Um, what are your thoughts, your further thoughts really, on Australia's monetary contribution? Um, because certainly we've been compared with China um, and I think uh, Frank Baini Marama, who is the Fijian Prime Minister, made some remarks about Scott Morrison um, and certainly compared us with China. He said that um, really he was saying, I'm just trying to find it here, um, that it was quite uh, insulting. He said, I gathered Scott Morrison was here only to make sure that the Australian policies were upheld by the Pacific Island nations um, and suggested that China doesn't insult island countries or go down and tell the world that we've been given this money to the that we're giving this money to the Pacific Islands they're not constantly throwing out their generosity in in the Pacific's face uh, what do you think about those um, comparisons between the Australia's approach to the region and China's approach well I think it's important to note that the region's changing you know in in past decades uh, the Pacific was once described as an American lake. The United States, Australia, New Zealand and France were the major players, um, former colonial powers, indeed sometimes current colonial powers, um, and uh, the major donors, the major providers of trade, investment, military support and so on. But that world has changed rapidly. And it's not just China. It's Taiwan, it's Korea, it's Indonesia, it's India, it's uh, many countries from the European Union are really looking to the uh, Asia-Pacific region as an important strategic arena. And in all that, that conflict and pressure, Pacific Islands have forged their own diplomacy. Um, they talk a lot about the Blue Pacific, looking at the Pacific as a liquid continent and wanting to, to address their own policies around security, around trade, around uh, um, climate and so on. And indeed, last year, at the forum in Nauru, uh, leaders signed a, a declaration called the Boy Declaration. And one of the most significant things was that it's about security in the Pacific. But they, they were asked for, and I quote, an expanded concept of security, inclusive of human security, humanitarian assistance, prioritizing environmental security and regional cooperation. So when we, the Pacific governments are talking about security, they're not just talking about, you know, traditional military power, national security, you know, and so on, Chinese spies and the like. They're talking about a broader notion of human security. And the leaders all refer, reaffirmed, quote, climate change remains the single greatest threat to the livelihood, security and well-being of the peoples of the Pacific. So they're redefining security beyond the traditional Cold War notion of the great power clashes. And one of the problems for Australia is that its re-engagement with the region under Prime Minister Morrison, and he certainly has re-engaged by active travelling to the region and so on, it's very much framed through China. It's very fearful of China as a growing emerging power within the region. And Australia has long maintained a policy dubbed strategic denial, the idea that the countries to the north and east of our continent are a buffer zone to keep um, the enemy out. And the problem is, if China as a perceived enemy is, is uh, getting closer to Australia, that's obviously concerning the hard-head security crats um, in, uh, in Canberra. But uh, Prime Minister Bainimarama has hit the nail on the head that China is engaging as a South-South partner with Pacific Island countries. 
they don't lecture in the same way that Australia does about about various issues, and they uh, are willing to talk about issues around infrastructure and so on that the Pacific's been raising for a long time. So I don't think anyone needs to be naive. Um, there's a lot of hostility towards uh, communism in the Pacific. I don't think anyone should think that the Pacific's going red, but they're certainly willing to engage with people that in the past were taboo. And um, that horse has bolted. And I think you see it very strongly this year. Both the Solomon Islands and Kiribati have shifted their diplomatic relations from Taiwan to the People's Republic of China. That's two out of the six countries in the Pacific that have supported Taiwan just in the last couple of months have ditched Taiwan. So for all Morrison's step up, uh, it's not really affecting China's growing political influence. Mm, that's very interesting. Um, in, I think uh, Victoria's Premier Daniel Andrews has been criticised for engaging with China on the Belt and Road Initiative, which is their big infrastructure initiative. It's kind of a global engagement. How are the Pacific Island nations engaging or not in the Belt and Road Initiative? Some countries have signed up to formally to Belt and Road, um, Papua New Guinea, for example, and Fiji. Um, others are more wary, and I think it's important to say that there's no one unified position on China in Pacific Island countries. There's a diversity of opinion. As I mentioned, four countries are still aligned with Taiwan, not uh, the People's Republic. Um, and even within countries, this was seen in the Solomons, where there was a big national debate about the pros and cons of engaging with China. And dare I say, this is not a Pacific problem. Every country in the world is having this discussion, including Australia. You know, we have a debate about China as a major economic partner, our largest export market, a major investor within Australia, purchasing everything from food to land to minerals and so on, um, but a, a security paranoia in Canberra about China. And our Pacific neighbours are grappling with that in the same way. Nonetheless, um, a number of countries, Fiji, Papua New Guinea, Samoa and others, are very involved in Belt and Road, particularly for infrastructure investment around ports, roads, uh, public buildings and other infrastructure that has been lacking in many countries. Mm. Um, you just mentioned there Papua New Guinea. I'm really interested in the current situation in West Papua, uh, which you just wrote about for Inside Story, um, and how things are escalating over there. Because, of course, we know that West Papua has long had um, a range of, I guess, conflicts that bubbled up around um, being independent and separate from Indonesia. Where are we at at the moment in West Papua? Well... Dutch New Guinea, as it was called in those days, was the western half of the island, mm. used to be a, a, a colony of the Netherlands. Indonesia moved in in the 1960s under a UN mandate and then under a thing called the Act of Free Choice, which was uh, not really freely chosen. About 1,000 people, 1,022 people, voted that Indonesia should be the administering power. And so Indonesia regards um, this as the provinces of Papua and West Papua. Um, there is a strong nationalist movement that dates back to the Second World War and particularly the 1960s that believes it should be an independent country. And Indonesia has maintained its rule there since the late 1960s by armed force. Um, there's massive upsurge of conflict over the last year, particularly beginning in December last year with uh, 
shootings of some road workers, Indonesian road workers in a regency in a province called uh, Nduga. That region saw massive Indonesian military repression um, where tens of thousands, some estimate up to 40,000 people, have been displaced from their towns and their homes in villages, um, people living in the bush, literally, to... to uh, uh, be fearful and a number of buildings, churches and so on damaged or destroyed by the Indonesian military. That um, was then exacerbated later in the year in August when uh, some Papuan students studying in Indonesia in Surabaya um, <coughs> excuse me, um, were uh, entered into a clash with uh, neighbouring Indonesians and Javanese um, uh, they were accused of insulting the Indonesian flag and were attacked as monkeys and uh, dogs and so on. Um, this sort of abuse was, uh, you know, led to physical clashes and and students around Indonesia, there are many Papuan students in Indonesian tertiary institutions, started protesting and that spread to West Papua itself. And so there was uh, rioting in Jayapura, the capital, in uh, um, Wamana, a major highlands town, and a number of deaths as the Indonesian police and military came in to put down protests. Um, and these protests quickly moved beyond the issue of racism to call for a Medeka freedom, emancipation. Uh, Medeka has been the slogan of the independence movement. And the United Liberation Movement of West Papua, a national liberation movement, has been calling for international support to uh, stop the uh, Indonesian um, repression. Indeed, this year's forum saw a, a resolution, the first time, uh, where the forum members, including Australia, called for Indonesia to let the UN Human Rights Commissioner, Michelle Bachelet, uh, from Chile, come to West Papua to monitor the human rights condition there. The Indonesians invited her a long time ago, but keep delaying the trip. Um, and uh, that's been a, a major concern that uh, there's not proper monitoring by the United Nations or other international independent human rights bodies about what's going on on the ground. Um, so this is interesting. Vanuatu, um, which is a long-time supporter of the West Papua nationalist movement, uh, the Foreign Minister, Ralph Regan Vanu, pushed this issue at the forum, and Vanuatu will host next year's Pacific Islands Forum. It's Vanuatu's 40th anniversary of independence, and they'll be the forum host in 2020. So this issue of West Papua will be very high on the agenda of the Pacific Islands Forum in coming months. Mm. Now, um, interestingly, I was surprised to see that apparently 16,000 additional Indonesian troops have been deployed uh, to West Papua. I mean, what does that do to the situation over there when you bring in that such a significant or additional um, military force? Well, it exacerbates conflicts that exist on the ground. The indigenous Melanesian population, the West Papuan population, is uh, slowly becoming a, a minority in its own land. Going back to the days of the dictator Saharto, there's been transmigration of people, particularly from Java and Sulawesi, other major islands in Indonesia. And so there's quite a significant non-Papuan population living there. And there's a lot of social tension. Um, having the military and police ramping up its presence can, frankly, militarise existing social tensions. It's notable, though, that um, Indonesian President Jokowi, having just been re-elected to power, has just made a trip uh, just uh, this week to uh, West Papua. Um, he's seeking to... Uh, uh, present a sort of more human face uh, to the Indonesian military. Uh, he's proposing a range of development activities 
um, not just the Papuan provinces, but also uh, Maluku and other eastern provinces of Indonesia have always been the least developed in terms of infrastructure. Uh, they've got the poorest health and education records of all Indonesian provinces. Um, so this is Jokowi coming to say, we want to provide development. The problem is... The sort of mega projects that they're proposing for the Indonesian government and often with military involvement is stealing and and uh, and or you know alienating um, indigenous land and like most Melanesian populations like most Pacific populations uh, land is really culturally very important it's got a, a spiritual as well as economic function and so while Indonesia claims to be building big projects around rice production or um, palm oil, this has often involved the alienation of customary land, and that generates new conflict, which are then put down by the military. So the cycle repeats itself. It's, um, it's a recipe for disaster as long as Indonesia and indeed Australia and Papua New Guinea are reluctant to talk about the fundamental issue, which is the right to self-determination for the people of West Papua. Mm. And as we can see from all of this, really, the colonial influence is still there and um, it certainly is affecting a number of nations in the Pacific. One other nation I'm, I can think of is New Caledonia, who uh, in November 2018 had a referendum on their um independence, potential independence from France. You, I know, were over there reporting on um, that issue for a number of months and I was really surprised but also um, really it's quite interested and excited, I guess, to see that there'll be another referendum because, presumably because, um, the the vote was 43% in favour of independence, which is pretty um, substantial and, I guess, a very close outcome. What was it like? over in New Caledonia and what were the discussions on the ground from the people of New Caledonia in terms of the arguments for and against uh, becoming independent from France? Well, it's really, as you say, it's a really interesting time. Uh, Last year I spent six weeks in the lead-up to the referendum. Um, This referendum came at the end of a 20-year transition under a deal called the Namir Accord, which was signed in 1998. During that time, Paris has passed powers to the local government in New Caledonia, but the issue of the referendum was whether the country wanted to be fully sovereign and independent, so to take control of defence, of police and the courts, of currency, and of most aspects of foreign policy. Um, The polling suggested that there would be limited support for independence, that um, early polls suggested 15 20%, finally about 30-odd percent, Um, The polling was suggesting that um, the independence movement, which has been campaigning particularly since the 80s for the right to to independence, um, would not do so well. But as you say, the final result was 43% in favour. So while people, majority of people, voted to stay within the French Republic, that 43% figure really shocked um, the French government and local conservative anti-independence politicians. I was at the French High Commission watching the count on the night of the vote, and as the count mounted beyond 20, 25, 30, 35%, people's faces were falling further and further. Um, 43% has given enormous um, hope to the independence movement, which has uh, got its basis of support in the indigenous Kanak population, although there are some Kanak, non-Kanaks who vote for independence. It was overwhelmingly the indigenous people who called for independence. Um, I interviewed um, 
the head of the FLNKS, the Connect National Liberation Front, which is the main coalition of independence parties, a guy called Daniel Goa, and he said, and it's a very important statement, we lost on the numbers, but for us it was a great victory. And I think that's really crucial. If uh, only 30% of people had voted in favour of independence, there would have been enormous pressure on the independence movement basically to give up, to take a deal of some sort of autonomy within the French Republic, but, but not full sovereign independence. Um, they feel now that there's hope for um, um, reaching 50 and, and beyond. Um, and one of the unique things about the Namir Accord is it allows up to three referenda, not one, to determine the political status of the country. So if the first vote was no, as it was in November, it's possible for a third of the Congress to call for a second referendum. And just two weeks ago, at a meeting in Paris, um, all political parties and the French government agreed that a second referendum should be held at the beginning of September next year. So September 2020, there'll be another referendum. And uh, the independence movement over the coming months will be ramping up their campaign, seeking to bridge the gap between 43 and a majority. Um, it's worth noting, too, that there's a referendum this month in Bougainville, a province uh, of Papua New Guinea, North Solomon's province of Papua New Guinea. Um, under the autonomous Bougainville government, there's been a push once again for independence. Um, and uh, Bougainvillians will go to the polls on the 23rd of November um, to vote for independence. It's not automatic, though, if they vote yes, that that will happen. The issue then goes to the PNG Parliament, and at the moment there's um, a majority opposition to independence within the, the full national parliament of Papua New Guinea. Um, so I think it's going to be, once again, a question of how large is the independence vote. If it's only a narrow majority, I think the PNG Parliament will say, well, there's lots of people who want to stay, so maybe we have to defer things. But if there's an overwhelming vote in, in favour of independence, um, that puts a lot of pressure on Papua New Guinea to uh, continue a transition towards a new political status and indeed towards an independent nation. And apart from the obvious um, kind of repercussions or um, outcomes of becoming independent, what are some of the real reasons or um, benefits for a, a smaller country um, to, I guess, l remove themselves or become politically independent from a larger nation that perhaps might be supplying or giving some level of economic assistance? At one level, it's often about cultural identity, national identity, people's feeling that they are, um, you know, a nation in themselves. And, uh, and we see this all around the world, in Scotland, in Catalonia, in a number of places, um, people feeling that although they're part of a broader nation, a broader federation sometimes, that they have their own national identity, cultural identity, and their own way of doing things. And that's very strong both in Bougainville, in New Caledonia, and in West Papua. Um, there are potential dangers um, because, for example, France provides an awful lot of funding to New Caledonia. And one of the things during the referendum campaign last year was many people concerned that if France was to turn off the financial taps, uh, that would affect the quality of health services, of education, the provision of pensions, um, because France provides an awful lot of money, much of its boomerang aid that goes back to benefit France rather than the locals. But New Caledonia is a very wealthy country by Pacific standards. Mm. In contrast, um, Bougainville is, is quite poor, and Papua New Guinea hasn't put the same resources into Bougainville that we've seen in New Caledonia. 
The other crucial question, though, is control of natural resources. One of the features of all three cases, West Papua, Bougainville, New Caledonia, is the issue of mining and resource exploitation. Um, there's a major mine at Freeport in the Grasberg Mountains of West Papua. The Panguna mine in Bougainville was at the heart of the war in Bougainville during the 1990s that saw up to 20,000 people dead. And New Caledonia? New Caledonia's got nickel. Uh, indeed, it's got about a quarter of the world's nickel reserves. That's a massive resource that if they controlled that resource would give them leverage to negotiate with other countries. And at the moment, um, the, the administering power, the colonial power, takes the majority of benefits um, from these resource projects. So that's a key issue. Um, and when people say, oh, I was talking to people in New Caledonia, and often the concern was, well, if France turns off the tap, we lose all the money from them. But independence would allow these countries to build up links with neighbouring countries like Australia and New Zealand through trade. Um, indeed, Australia could provide aid to New Caledonia in a way that it can't now. Australia, under the rules, can't give aid to France, but it could potentially give aid, uh, investment, support to a neighbouring Pacific Island country. Mm. And also everything from the World Bank and ADB to United Nations agencies, other countries would be willing to engage with an independent country in a way they're not willing to engage with uh, uh, a French colony. That is a really interesting point there. Um, just finally, Nick, before we go, I wanted to raise the Marshall Islands, which we've discussed previously on this program and your book, which is uh, related to this issue. Um, I've seen in the news across the year that uh, the uh, nuclear dome that the American military um, placed over the radioactive material and waste that was left from uh, the US cactus bomb in May 1958, that that uh, concrete 45 centimetre thick dome has been developing cracks in it for quite a while and there are concerns that it is leaking um, radioactive nuclear material. Where are we up to in this situation, particularly around um, the slated investigation into it and what the solutions to that might be? Because it seems like it was really um, quite an ill-thought-out solution at the time. Yeah, look, this was another issue raised by uh, President Hilda Heine, the president of the Marshall Islands at last year's uh, in, at August's meeting of the Pacific Islands Forum. She's been a real champion for, for raising uh, the issue of the legacies of nuclear testing. The United States conducted 67 atomic and hydrogen bomb tests in the atmosphere in the Marshall Islands back in the late 1940s, 1950s. Um, and they're not the only country affected. French Polynesia had 193 French nuclear tests. And, of course, we know that Britain tested both in Australia, um, at uh, Montebello, at Emu Field, at Maralinga, and also in Kiribati on Christmas and Malden Island. Um, so more than 300 nuclear tests, 310 nuclear tests across the Pacific have left incredible radioactive legacies. And as you say... The Americans, um, as they were, were um, sort of trying to end the testing program, basically shoveled together a whole lot of nuclear contaminated materials, buried them with bulldozers, and then covered it in concrete. But anyone who's built a concrete footpath, uh, particularly in a marine environment, knows that concrete doesn't last forever. So here we are. The problem was supposedly buried, but radioactive isotopes can last for for generations indeed plutonium 
the longest uh, lasting uh, radioactive isotope as a result of nuclear testing has a half-life of 24,400 years. That means in, in that span of time, a half of the material decays away uh, through uh, emitting radio, radioactivity. Um, 24,400 years, that's a, you know, beyond human imagination. And this is a problem, that these are essentially nuclear sacrifice zones that need to be monitored and maintained for, inevitably, the future. Um, and the concrete dome that's cracking needs a review. The government has now commissioned um, people to come. They're looking for funding, however, from the US government, which is responsible for this mess, and they're looking for political support from other countries to ensure that it's done effectively and rapidly. Um, you know, the clean-up of contaminated areas, uh, at least the remediation of areas, uh, is a problem because some of the northern atolls, like uh, Bikini, Eniwetok and Rongelap still have uh, contamination like cesium-137 and other things that's got into the food chain. And uh, a study done by a team from Columbia University that published just this year in the prestigious uh, um, Proceedings of the National Academy of Science in the United States has shown that the northern atolls in the Marshalls uh, are still contaminated um, and the food chain is still affected by radioactive contamination. Um, it's very hard to clean up, but it's a very costly process, and the Marshall Islands has been lobbying the United States for decades to take responsibility for the problem it created. That issue is going to remain on the forum agenda, and indeed Australia has an interest in this being done properly, given we live with the same contaminated legacy in the deserts of South Australia. Indeed. Well, I do hope that the American government um, contributes to this in a substantial way and uh, that we do see some movement on it because I know it's been um, co constantly an issue and really been swept aside by a number of other nations who um, are not interested. Thank you so much, Nick, for joining us today. And uh, I do hope that you have a, a wonderful week and that we get to catch up again to talk more about um, Pacific Island politics and also the Australia-Pacific relationship, which seems to be evolving as we speak. Thanks, Amy. Look, there's a lot happening around the region. And <laughs> yeah. I think uh, it's, a, it's a problem that the Australian media doesn't serve our citizens well by keeping up to breast with uh, the dynamism of what's happening, but also what the Pacific's doing about it. I think one of the things is our media suggests, oh, these poor Pacific Islanders have got all these problems. They don't highlight what our neighbours are doing around climate change, around oceans and other areas. So um, thanks for the opportunity and, yeah, let's talk again. It's my pleasure. Thank you. It's an excellent point you make. I've been speaking with Nick McClellan, who is the island's business correspondent. He is also a researcher and an author, and he wrote a fantastic book, which you should certainly check out if you're interested in the last um, topic we discussed, Grappling with the Bomb, Britain's Pacific H-Bomb Tests. And the interview that I did with Nick McClellan is up on my SoundCloud and podcast and that was from 15th of May 2018, if you're interested in looking it up. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. 
You are tuned in to 3RRFM. This is Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. I'm here with you up until noon today. And I have with me in the studio the wonderful Dr Emma Shortus. She is a historian and she's based at the EU Study Centre at RMIT. And uh, welcome, Emma. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me again. It's great to have you back as usual. And fantastic to talk about uh, US politics, America, the land of the free. How exciting. Um, it's always interesting and it reminds me of that thing that people say about their hate-love relationship with America because there's so many wonderful things about it and then so many things that are really problematic. So we're going to kind of have a bit of both, I think, <laughs> in this discussion. Um, first up, let's go with the kind of obvious, which is Donald Trump yep. and the impeachment uh, hearings, which have been um, being conducted at the moment. Uh, and there's a lot of controversy around them and a bit of drama kind of going on and some kind of the key um, Republicans who are particularly conservative um, who are making these kind of protests or demonstrations and storming a hearing, I heard. Um, can you tell us more about the dynamics on the ground and what these Republicans and the mischief they're making really is all about? Yeah, sure. So things things got a little bit even weirder this week, which is kind of a, a, a difficult thing to, to justify saying, but it's true, things got a bit weirder. So we have this ongoing impeachment inquiry, which is happening, which is basically the committees of Congress doing their work, investigating the president, the people around him for corruption, for all kinds of things stemming from this Ukraine phone call, right? And there are a lot of kind of um, Trump Republicans, you know, diehard Trump supporters who are in Congress who who pulled this stunt um, this week where basically what they did was they called it there's a, there's committee hearings happening and some of them happen kind of under lock and key because they're dealing with secure testimony, secure information that's not open to the public, which is like I should say entirely normal for mm. Congress to do. You know, these a lot of these Congress people have high-level security clearances to deal with this kind of information. And so what these Republicans did was they said they they stormed, I'm using air quotes, they, st- they stormed this congressional um, committee because they said it was being closed to the public and they weren't allowed on it. Right, which is mm-hmm. not at all true because mm. there are like something like forty Republicans on these committees. They're they're bipartisan committees, and Republicans are allowed in them. They they have access to the information, but they they so called stormed this um, secure hearing, and a lot of them did things like taking their mobile phones, do filming, which is like highly illegal. Mm. Yeah, disrupted this hearing for a number of hours, stopped somebody from testifying for a couple of hours. And then it, it kind of, I mean, it sort of ended with a bit of a fizz. Like apparently they kind of went in and, and sat around and took some photos and videos and had pizza. <laughs> and, and then... What on earth? Yeah, it's, now it's I understand really your strange. weird comment. That is just <laughs> ridiculous. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, and then it kind of the the committee hearings went on, but got a lot of attention. And it it's sort of, I mean, it's I guess it's sort of easy to dismiss, you know, laughing about mm. them having pizza because it is so so weird and kind of didn't didn't really have an impact. But it, because it was all about kind of the optics of it, I suppose, you know, yeah. showing to the base that Republicans are supporting Trump and also creating this false narrative around the impeachment proceedings being illegitimate, which they absolutely are not. Mm-hmm. They're totally constitutionally sound. We've had a ruling this week just affirming exactly that that this is all. This is all kosher. It's all fine, but Republicans are kind of developing this narrative where you know it's it's Trump's idea of a witch hunt. But it is it is kind of scary, I think, in the way that Republicans are 
just kind of trashing these norms, these democratic norms around the kind of usual processes of Congress, which is, you know, part of what Trump is doing is is kind of trashing the broader American political system. So this is part of that, I think. Mm. And I was interested that one of the, or at least one, I think a number of uh, Republicans in that storming group um, were actually able to sit in on that hearing because they were part of those committees. Yeah, exactly. Some of, some of them are actually members of the committees. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and they have a right to sit on them. They have the security clearances. Um, but, the, you know, again, this is just part of the kind of misinformation that they're, they're generating and quite happy, you know, quite happy to do that kind of just bald face lying. Mm. It's weird. Yeah. Um, I Well, the, speaking of bald-faced lies, I, I was wondering if you could fact-check something for <laughs> sure. me, Emma. I heard at a – well, I wasn't at the Trump rally, but I saw a video of a Trump rally where Donald Trump was saying, oh, we're building walls, we've built a wall in, you know, Mexico. Uh, we're also building a wall in Colorado – yeah, this was one of those really interesting ones where it's so hard to understand, you know, what is actually going on. Because Trump, you're right that Trump did say they're building a wall in New Mexico, mm-hmm. which is actually a state of the United States, not part yes. of Mexico, and in Colorado. And, kind of, you know, everybody kind of jumps on and he's like, uh, what? Like, why would you mm-hmm. build a wall in Colorado? Like, that's a, that's a while from the border. <laughs> yeah. And then you have Trump kind of turn around and say, oh, no, no, I was talking about – I think he said at one stage I was talking about the Colorado River or I was talking about how it will benefit Colorado if there is a wall along the border with Mexico. And, it, it again, it is really hard to tell if this is kind of Trump – riffing and saying something just kind of totally incorrect because actually his his geography is just fundamentally bad or he if he know his is, own country exactly <laughs> or if he is doing this kind of you know just kidding around this kind of wink wink nudge nudge and kind of baiting people and I, I think you know I'll be perfectly honest like often I can't tell with Trump if he's just kind of throwing meat to the base and and you know enraging the libs which yeah. is one of the things that he likes to do or if he genuinely just thought Colorado was at the border I don't I don't know (laughs) we may never know um yeah well it was interesting here that he clarified on Twitter well I don't I don't think it's really much of a clarification but um it it was in brackets kiddingly kiddingly kiddingly, uh, close bracket we're building a wall in Colorado that's a quote then then in brackets then stated we're not building a wall in Kansas but they get the benefit of the wall we're building on the border in bracket referred to people in the very packed auditorium from Colorado and Kansas getting the benefit of the border wall now that is a literal tweet from Donald Trump that makes like zero sense (laughs) yeah not many of them do hey (laughs) um the kiddingly at the start is kind of is an interesting one as well is that like a stage direction that he's giving himself or it's almost like reading a play yeah it is very strange but I think it's also kind of part of his bigger shtick where it's this kind of narrative that the alt-right uses right so they you know he'll say something that on the face of it is a total lie or is ridiculous and people will fact check him and I'll go, oh yeah, of course I was, you know, I was just joking. It's a bit like when he said after the Charlottesville murder, you know, there are very fine people on both sides Mm. and people kind of come out and attack him. And he says, that's, you know, that's not what I meant. Of course, that's not what I meant. How dare you misconstrue my words? But we know and research tells us that the alt-right responds to that kind of language in a in a kind of wink-wink, nudgy-nudgy kind of way. So they say, oh, we know the president is just saying that to like, 
um, I guess, reassure the mainstream, but we know that actually he's on our side. He's on the side of white supremacy and the alt-right. So it actually kind of feeds into this, I guess, broader broader development and, and broader strengthening of the alt-right that Trump is a really big part of. This is a kind of tried and true technique. So while, you know, when we're talking about the geography of Colorado, it doesn't have necessarily have that impact, it's kind of part of this much broader pattern, I think. Mm. Well, speaking of alt-right and figures and kind of dog whistles, uh, Steve Bannon's kind of popped out of his little hidey hole and uh, did a little interview on Sunday and was talking about the impeachment proceedings and said that the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is, quote, winning the battle to impeach Trump. Um, And he's promoting a podcast called The War Room Impeachment um, and says that we have to get organised. It almost sounds like he's decided that Trump isn't doing a good enough job of defending himself, so he's going to, like, ride in on his horse? Yeah, which is very much kind of Bannon's way of operating. You know, he's he's claimed credit, basically, for the entire 2016 election for, for building up Trump, for the rise of Trump. So that is, you know, that's Bannon doing what Bannon does, I think, with his massive ego and taking credit for things. But it's also, again, you know, it's part of this, again, it's part of this broader narrative around impeachment and how it's democratic. Democrats unable to reconcile themselves to losing the 2016 election and the only way they can see to defeat Trump is by kind of illegally kicking him out of office, right? Or by this is part of their, their mm. efforts to steal the 2020 election. So this is Bannon, I think, kind of rallying the base in that sense, especially in the face of, of polling that is suggesting that impeachment impeachment proceedings are becoming more and more acceptable to the wider public and more and more people are actually in favour of impeachment removing the president from office. So this is kind of Bannon, I think doing what he does and you know he he and his supporters are, are getting help from Facebook we know Facebook have just put Breitbart which is the the media organization that Bannon founded and that had a huge role in bringing Trump to prominence and in rallying his support base they're they're a news source now on Facebook so it's it's pretty scary what we're dealing with and, and mm. also that kind of language you know you just said Bannon's podcast is called the war room mm. we're seeing lots of you know what ostensibly are outliers in the American political landscape talking about you know if the president is removed from office we're talking about civil war and and without wanting to kind of dis I, I wouldn't want to dismiss that because this is the kind of narrative that is developing around impeachment and around Trump you know a narrative of violence and around stealing elections and returning to a time of civil war which is which is pretty scary mm, it certainly is and um, Trump isn't really hesitating to try and use impeachment to his advantage um, sending out emails to his supporter base asking for more funds yep. in order to fight impeachment he's trying to rally his fellow Republican politicians behind him yep. to say we need to be united um, which is also quite interesting um i am interested in is it mick yeah chief acting white house chief of staff mick mulvaney who um got in this little flurry of issues because he had he almost well the media essentially thought and i agree that he said or admitted to trump agreeing there was a, a quid pro quo like that he essentially verified this um, conversation between the Ukraine president and uh, Trump was a quid pro quo, which is a Latin term. Um, what 
there, then there was this fallout and he's saying, oh, no, I didn't say that, even though there's literally video of him saying it and I don't – it's not that kind of – under question unless he really was poor at articulating his views <laughs> Which is, i guess possible it is possible certainly it's not you know it's happened yeah. before with other you know, <laughs> chief of staff and media people in the white house um but what do you, what were your thoughts on that like incident and how people thought that was a another example of someone really verifying what is already in a phone call transcript yeah. and what many whistleblowers have already stated um having been part of that call or at least hearing that call um thinking there literally was a a clear quid pro quo agreement yeah look i I think you're absolutely right mulvaney Mulvaney in a press conference essentially said there was a quid pro quo you know trump said to the ukrainian president you do this for me i'll do this for you that that was essentially what it was that you know the u.s with withholding military aid on which ukraine is almost totally reliant Mm. and he trump has basically said to them you know i'll give you this aid i'll release this aid if you investigate the Bidens, which is really in it's basically clear cut that that is completely illegal. You know, it's not like the other, the kind of Russian investigation where there's obviously illegal behaviour and corrupt behaviour going on, but, you know, it takes 448 pages to kind of explain it in any detail. And even Mm. then it's kind of not clear. This is really clear cut and Mulvaney said it, essentially said it in a press conference. And then it seems like kind of walked away and realised that he'd said it out loud, (laughs) I suppose. And and lots of people in the media had kind of... characterize this as you know this is bad this is really bad because he said it so clearly Mm. um and then he kind of walked back his statements and did the same thing that we just talked about you know how dare you misconstrue what i've said there's no misconstruing going on here this Mm -hmm. is and and you know of course it's important to acknowledge as well that mulvaney as you said is not the only one lots of people have said this not just a whistleblower people have said this on the record and former ambassadors and and we will see i think in the next week or so more testimony, more people are going to come forward before committees who were aware of what was going on and knew it was wrong mm. and and rose concerns about it at the time. So I think this, this is a really clear-cut case of basically illegal behaviour. And again, this I think is why we're seeing more public support for impeachment and also why we're seeing, I think there's some really interesting things going on with Republicans in the Senate. There's obviously the hardcore Republican supporters, you know, the people who are storming those committees, Mm. but there are less and less Republicans willing to go on the record and say they will vote against removing the president from office. Now that's not enough at all. You know, we need, there would need to be something like 20 Republicans to change their minds after a trial in the Senate, but it is significant that Republicans are starting to push back. And I think we saw that with, I don't know if you saw that um, Trump had said that he was going to hold the G7 meeting, which is in the US next year, at his resort in Miami, Mm -hmm. Um, which again is a, a pretty basic violation of the Constitution. It's illegal for the president to profit off the office of the presidency, which he would have done if Mm -hmm. this um, event was held at his hotel. And he backed down, which is very unusual for Trump, but he backed down because Republicans in the Senate basically said to him, this is kind of, this is pretty egregious and you shouldn't be doing this. So Trump is worried, I think, about about those Republicans in the Senate. And that's why he's making those comments that you mentioned earlier about making sure Republicans are united in the fight against impeachment. Mm. And in terms of this, um, the Speaker Pelosi and her kind of role, um, and I guess that she waited, like a lot of people had been calling on her to pull the trigger for a range of other reasons, um, 
for Trump to have an impeachment hearing. But how are people kind of treating her and the way that she's kind of acting? Because a lot of people, well, Trump himself has kind of belittled her on many occasions to kind of undercut her power and authority. Um, But I think a lot of other people think that she's been quite a good operator um, in this situation. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a good question because Pelosi certainly divides opinion. You know, people, there were elements who were furious at her for not pursuing impeachment earlier, saying Mm. it was a huge political gamble. Others kind of saying, no, it was political genius because she waited for this moment where we, as we just discussed, there's a really clear cut reason for impeachment. So actually, you know, she's a genius political (laughs) operator. And to be honest, I'm, I, I guess I'm kind of somewhere in the middle. You know, I think she's in an incredibly difficult position, but she is a very, very sad political operator. I think sometimes, like much of the Democratic establishment, she's too worried about what rusted on Trump supporters think and not about what the broader population thinks. And, you know, as a historian as well, I think some of the, some of the arguments that she made against pursuing impeachment proceedings were kind of taking, like, for want of a better phrase, the wrong lessons from history. So a lot of the, a lot of the arguments around impeachment Uh, were that it's extremely unpopular and you shouldn't pursue it. You should focus on elections. And and a lesson from that is looks at Clinton. So when Clinton faced impeachment proceedings, his popularity actually rose significantly. And he, by the time he left office, of course, he wasn't, he wasn't removed from office. So he was impeached by the house, but then the Senate acquitted him. And by the time he left office, he actually was had some of his highest approval ratings ever and actually some of the highest approval ratings a president had ever had. Mm. And so the lesson drawn from that is don't pursue impeachment because it, it serves a sitting president well. You know, as a historian, I would say, actually, it's a little bit more complicated than that. (laughs) (laughs) This is very different, different circumstances. You know, Clinton was being pursued for very different reasons than, Mm. than Trump. And also the counter argument is to that, of course, that Democrats went on to lose the 2000 presidential election. You know, the sitting, the sitting party lost that election with quite severe consequences. So, you know, I think there's there's an awful lot going on here and Pelosi does become the figure of a lot of ire. But I, I think, you know, she at the moment I think is, seems to be playing it quite well by, by kind of letting Trump, you know, tighten his own noose in a way. And that's also evident, I think, by the way that Trump isn't targeting her as much. He's going after Adam Schiff, who's another quite prominent figure, much harder because he sees him as an easier target. So, yeah, look, it'll be really interesting to see what Pelosi does, but the whole party seems now to be behind these impeachment proceedings. All of the major candidates for the presidential nomination are behind impeachment. Um, So it it does seem to be – there seems to be significantly growing support in that regard. It's very, um, yeah, interesting to see also the gender dynamics um, of of all these situations. Uh, I think there was – some I can't remember her name now because she's not as much of a prominent figure. But there's a woman who's been accused of having a sexual relationship or a couple of sexual relationships with her staff, um, and people have made these comparisons that she really um, has done something that was consensual um, and that isn't hasn't been yet or at all claimed as being harassment or assault. And yet the president has been accused of sexual assault and harassment through allegations uh, at least 24 times and he hasn't resigned. And this woman who, you know, is in almost very different circumstances announcing that she's stepping back. 
Yeah, it is It is quite an extraordinary contrast. So this is about, her name's Katie Hill. She's a Democrat from uh, California, I believe, and she has had an affair with, I think, a campaign staffer, a consensual affair, mm-hmm. as you said, um, which breaks... I th- I think I'm not quite clear on the dynamics of it, but it breaks some rules set by Congress in the aftermath of Me Too that you're not supposed to have relationships with your staffers, and it's not quite clear how and where in what way that might apply to campaign staffers. Mm. But anyway, she has had this affair, but turns out has also been the the victim of a basically revenge porn. So her husband, who she's in a very acrimonious divorce proceedings with, has released photos, nude photos of her to conservative outlets and she's been subject to all kinds of horrendous harassment and, you know, God knows what else, um, you know, outlets, conservative outlets publishing these photos. And so she has resigned. She's basically been forced to resign because of this horrendous situation that she faces, finds herself in. But it really does, I think it highlights the, the enormous divide when, as you say, the sitting president has been credibly accused of of the full spectrum of harassment, you know, all the way through to rape. There's a new book out um, quite recently with more accusations, more credible accusations that has basically completely flown under the radar. Mm. You know, the New York Times now questions whether to even bother reporting on this stuff, which is just kind of extraordinary. It is, it is amazing. And it, it also shows the kind of political divide as well, you know, that when – this happens to Democrats and it has, you know, Al Franken, who was a very prominent Democrat, was accused of, credibly accused of sexual harassment and and left, you know, was resigned or was kind of forced out, as he sh- absolutely should have been, mm. where, you know, the, I guess the kind of one side of politics is held to a much higher standard than another. And, and you know, to be honest, I sort of don't, I don't know how to grapple with it. You know, how do you deal with this when, when the president has been accused by it now? It's now something like 40 plus women of wow. this kind of behaviour and, and there are no consequences, none whatsoever. And this young woman has had her career completely ruined for a consensual affair and because she's the victim of revenge born, you know, mm. it's, it's gross. It is, yeah, it's so wrong. Um, it's... I don't know. Have have people kind of jumped to her defence at all? Like I know people on Twitter have noticed the inequality of treatment, yeah. but has like have any prominent figures kind of rallied behind her? Yeah. Look, I, I mean, I couldn't really say. Absolutely, Twitter. I think has yeah. recognised has recognised that just the basic unfairness of this. I think prominent Democrats, from what I can tell. Uh, kind of steering clear of it yeah like they just don't really want to have anything to do with it they want it to go away there I think Democrats are really wary of any kind of controversy because you know it so quickly becomes um the subject of right-wing conspiracies and attacks that they're that they're just not sure how to deal with you know and I don't think anybody is that's not necessarily a criticism that's just kind of the world that we live in yeah but you know, I don't think she has had that much support because she has resigned. You know, mm. she hasn't had enough support around her to not resign, to not, resign, to not be yeah. forced to resign. So, so unfortunately, no, I don't think she has enough support. That's really disappointing. Um, let's talk about the Democrats and the primaries, which are ramping up. We've seen some, um, what are they really called? Like they do all do speeches and like answer questions. 
Yeah, so they all have different names for all different things. They've done yeah. quite a few. They call them town halls. Town halls, yeah, yeah, where they have kind of meetings with constituents and constituents can ask questions. They're usually um, themed around a particular issue like healthcare or climate change or whatever. Yeah. And then they also have the debates, which are the big ones where they're all kind of lined up on stage on CNN and they get, you know, like two minutes each to talk uh, about that's things. right. Yeah. yeah, I saw that um, there's one coming up, I think it's in Georgia, um, that's going to be but with all female journalists, which is fantastic, on the panel asking the questions, including Rachel Maddow, who I know a lot of people would be aware of. Um, But, yeah, I was interested in this horse race, essentially, because everyone is saying, oh, it's way too early to tell. As we know from history, things change very quickly um, and, you know, whoever you thought may have been the front runner will drop out for various reasons. Um, There are, though, at the moment, some key people who've kind of been pushing out their policy platforms and creating quite a coherent and cohesive plan. Um, I don't know whether it's too early or not to do that, but who knows? We'll soon find out. Um, but you've seen like some some of them engage with celebrities and try and get endorsements and get some momentum behind their campaigns. Um, one of them, Elizabeth Warren, was um, keen to get and received an endorsement from the Queer Eyes, Jonathan Van Ness. Yes, very big deal. Yes, massive. <laughs> um, they had this phone call and, you know, the video yep. was tweeted out and it was such a big thing and they're all bonding and... You know, she was trying to get some cred, which no doubt she probably needs um, because it's hard yep. in any presidential race to kind of look cool. Um, and and a lot of people have said that Elizabeth Warren's policies are quite left wing for previous, you know, comparisons of Democratic uh, policy platforms. And uh, also Bernie Sanders, who was quite popular last time around and was really up against Hillary Clinton. It got down to to those two. Um, He kind of, I think, lost a bit of favour with younger voters more recently um, from my very, you know... um, in informal sampling of people I know in America. Um, but I, it seemed like he's kind of trying to get back in with the crowd and was tweeting with Ariana Grande on Twitter. She said, um, she tweeted out, baby, how you feeling? Which I, just, that's the, the lingo of the young people today. And he tweeted over her like a, as a comment, um, ready to fight for Medicare for all. <laughs> Which is, I don't know if that's cool or just like a dad thing to do. Um, but he then since has, you know, talked about legalising marijuana, which I know would be quite popular with a number of people in America. So we're, given all of that and the kind of funny antics that go on um, as we inch closer and closer to 2020 primaries and um, once one will be chosen to be the candidate, what are your thoughts on, on these um candidates that have become more prominent and and more popular as time's progressing? Yeah, look, I mean, I'll, I'll be completely honest. The, you know, a couple of months ago, I would have said, I would have kind of been very surprised at how well Elizabeth Warren is mm. doing and also that Sanders has managed to kind of stay in the race for this long, you know, because he was enormously popular last time around. But I kind of, you know, like a lot of people, I thought he had a, he had a very minor heart attack a couple of weeks ago and I kind of thought, oh, that's 
that's probably that's it, it, you know, yeah. um, because it, we do have this narrative about how old the candidates are mm. and that, you know, all of the leading candidates are 70 plus and whether we should be concerned about that. Even though Trump is yeah, over exactly, 70. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> you know, and it's it's interesting how that kind of narrative plays out in a, on a gender basis as well, as we've kind mm-hmm. of alluded to. But I think, look, Sanders is, you know, he has, has man, maintained a significant amount of momentum. I think it's really significant that the, the squad, the kind of young millennial, millennial Democrats endorsed him at a rally not long ago in New York. AOC endorsed him in front of something like 20,000 people, you know, and so that brings a lot of young people on board. Mm. Um, but I think what's what's kind of interesting this time around, you mentioned Sanders and, and Clinton, is there's quite a different dynamic now going on between the leading candidates where Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who, who do have quite – they are quite – different in terms of some of their policy stances. I think sometimes people think they're the same. They're not. You know, Sanders is a bit more radical. But they, by and large, have been supporting each other. You know, I think people have been expecting them to kind of go at each other in um, in the debates and in the kind of broader process. But actually, they've mostly been in agreement and have been fighting, kind of united and fighting against more centrist tendencies mm. in the party. So I kind of expect it will be quite different you know, whoever gets the nomination, if it's Sanders, I think Warren would be completely behind him. And the, and the other way around, I think that will happen too. You know, I think the squad will would support Elizabeth Warren in that sense. That's probably getting a bit ahead of ourselves yeah. in, in terms of where the primaries are. And I, I would totally agree with those assessments that say it is early. You know, mm. the first primaries, the first actual votes where states decide who they're going to nominate don't happen until February, the first week of February. So that, that's a long time away. Yeah, in politics. In politics. Yeah. But it is really interesting to see, you know, Warren has developed some really solid momentum Um, and I think the way that things are playing out against her so she has you know really detailed plans a lot of which a a lot of the specifics are around things like wealth tax and redistribution and she's getting a lot of pushback from you know we've had Wall Street people Wall Street Democrats come out and say well if you know if you nominate Warren then we're voting for Trump because she's going to destroy us that plays really well for her I think at the moment Mm. because at the moment she needs to play to the Democratic base I think that's what we don't always understand from here you know that actually these nominees don't need to appeal to everyone Everyone. in the United States Mm. they don't yet necessarily depending on what strategy they they choose they don't need to appeal to Trump voters or Republican voters this is about Democrats this is about getting Democrats out to vote in the primaries so I think both Warren and Sanders are doing quite good work there um, there's also Joe Biden, of course, who, yes. who most people have, have written off um, because he ha- he has stumbled badly. And it is, uh, you know, I'm really sceptical. We see poll- new polls coming out all the time about who's the most popular candidate. And while I think that, you, you know, there is certainly some truth in the, in the momentum that people like Warren and Sanders have developed, I'm really sceptical of those kind of polls because a lot of the time I think it's just about name recognition. Mm, and also yeah. those kind of polls just, they, ca- they cannot possibly reflect reflect the primary process and the way that it works the sample sizes are so small and these decisions are made you know sometimes on a county by county basis sometimes people kind of meeting in lounge rooms and caucusing and making kind of consensus decisions around which candidate they think they should support some of of them are just straight up votes so it's an extremely complicated system and predicting how it's going to play out is extremely difficult so I would be very reluctant to do it to be honest fair enough Um, and of course, you know, we haven't even talked about then who becomes the vice presidential nominee. You know, there's already speculation about that. So yeah. there is a really long way to go. And it could, given 
that the candidates kind of aren't separated out that much. It, it could go all the way down to the wire. The, the convention, which is where all of the electoral votes are, are allocated, doesn't happen until July. So, you know, we've still got a while to it's go. Amazing. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> distressing, really. Um, let's finish out. Well, it's sure. not really a very uplifting tone, probably, um, but it's very important. And I think people have kind of just, apart from yesterday, forgotten about what's going on um, between Turkey and the Kurdish people. Uh, it certainly was, you know, front of mind a couple of weeks ago but it's since dropped off a little bit um and so i'm interested in talking about the particularly the american troops who when trump essentially um said oh well you know we're not going to get involved and turkey can go ahead and um reclaim that you know border area and um you know go in there against the Kurdish fighters, a lot of American troops were absolutely, and and veterans, not just current serving troops, were um, shocked, appalled and um, deeply ashamed to be American at that point because they essentially had fought side by side beside the Kurds against um, Islamic State. What um, we then saw, interestingly, was that... Trump imposed these kind of uh, economic sanctions for about nine days and then lifted them and has since claimed this great, you know, special victory about obtaining some sense of peace and resolution, um, which almost sounds like the media kind of went, oh, yeah, okay, we don't need to worry about that conflict anymore. But clearly we do. It's not like it went away. Um, It's still an issue uh, and certainly one of the other issues which Trump (laughs) commented on very funnily was this idea of the prisons over there that the Kurdish fighters were closely guarding Mm. as were uh, American military personnel. Um, Trump said, oh, well, they're all under secure lock and key and not to worry. We haven't, you know, lost all the prisoners. And um, and, but then he said and qualified, oh, but, but some of them escaped. But not all of them, so don't worry, it's all fine. Um, What do you make of America's involvement in that? Because they, I mean, this isn't new that Trump wanted to withdraw troops from the Middle East um, because he just thought, you know, we've been there, like, let's move on. So that's not new. Um, But certainly the way he's approached this particular conflict and situation is very much to Turkey and Russia's advantage, yeah, it, it, it absolutely is. I think you're absolutely right. So this is, I think, straight out of the, the Trump playbook. So Trump has made this just unilateral decision to, to withdraw from this region, as you say, and to withdraw American support for the Kurds. And as you said, that, you know, Americans had been fighting side by sides with the Kurds for, for a significant amount of time. And this was regarded as really important in the region. Trump makes this snap decision without consulting anybody. And then everybody scrambles to kind of deal with, with what it is he's done and try and understand his motivations, you know, if he has any, who knows. And then there's a huge amount of blowback and Trump I think was really taken aback by the blowback as you said by troops on the ground and mm. also veterans talking about how appalling this decision was and but also you know really staunch rusted on Trump supporters like Lindsey Graham in the Senate who said this was the worst decision the president had ever made right that that is yeah. a big deal for them to say that Trump I think was surprised by that and so then we have this scramble that you described of of you know sanctions and i will totally destroy turkey's economy if they do the thing that i've essentially given them the green light to do yeah 
which they did. We had the vice president, Mike um, Pence, fly to Turkey and have negotiations after Trump had released the probably the weirdest letter from a president that has ever been written to the Turkish president Erdogan that said, you know, don't be a fool. History will see you as a devil. Also, I will call you later. Honestly, it was one of the weirdest (laughs) things I've ever read. And so then we have this kind of weird um, diplomatic scramble, the announcement of a a so-called ceasefire or a pause, and then Turkey still does what it wants. And we kind of pretend like everything's okay and, the, and the, as you say, the news cycle moves on. This, I mean, it's an absolutely a foreign policy disaster, but I think some of the things that Trump has said point to the way, you know, he thinks his base doesn't really care. So he's made a few comments like, there's a lot of sand over there, let them fight over the sand, which is such a deeply racist thing mm. to say. But, you know, it plays to the base because it does play into that argument about the US getting involved in tribal wars where the people are ungrateful for our support, which, you know, obviously is horrible, but this Mm. is how I think, you know, it is characterised. But then I think it is also really interesting because Trump, as you kind of alluded to, did campaign on this idea about the US being in endless wars, which certainly has some cred, you know, the US getting involved in these absolute quagmires, making things significantly worse, Mm -hmm. and then not being able to extract itself in any way. So that that has traction for a reason, because there is some truth to it. But then for Trump to turn around and say, this is part of us ending endless wars is just patently ridiculous, because it's a very small number of troops. And when Trump and his base and the broader American public are talking about endless wars, they're not talking about the fight against IS, they're talking about Iraq and Afghanistan, which Trump is not making changes to. And no. he's also simultaneously sending more troops to places like Saudi Arabia. So <laughs> this is a, an absolute foreign policy disaster. Mm. But I think, you know, we shouldn't get carried away. I've seen some coverage that kind of says, you know, this could be the unravelling of Trump. This could be the undoing of him. Foreign policy is generally, there are absolutely exceptions, but generally isolated from domestic politics. Yep. And I don't think Lindsey Graham saying, you know, saying these things about the worst possible decision means that he's going to turn around and stop supporting Trump. No. So we shouldn't we shouldn't conflate those two issues. But again, you know, these the consequences of having a president who operates in this way, who makes unilateral decisions and who has seemingly very little understanding of the complexities of foreign policy and the significant consequences of what he is doing. You know, you mentioned IS prisoners escaping, not many though, don't worry, you know, a few of them have escaped, but also the consequences for the Kurds and for the broader region, you know, Mm. because we had afterwards Erdogan threatening Europe with 3.6 million refugees and and we know the consequences of those kind of immigration crises. Um, So the flow-on effects, the potential flow-on effects of these, you know, whimsical decisions that the president is making are are extremely serious. Mm, absolutely, yeah. It's um the displacement is a huge issue. Exactly. Um, yeah, it will be important to keep an eye on. Thank you so much, Emma, for coming in. It's been fantastic to chat with you That's about all this very complex but very important. Um, issues in the world. That's It's a pleasure. Anytime, Amy. I've been speaking with the fabulous Dr. Emma Shortis and she's based at the RMIT EU Studies Centre and is a historian. One of the best kinds, I think. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. 
very excited now to speak with my next guest, Timothy C. Weingard. He is a professor of history and political science at Colorado Mesa University in Colorado, America. And uh, Timothy has written a book called The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator. And it is out through text publishing in Australia. It's uh, quite a hefty tome. There's about... Let me see here, 442 pages of the the kind of main text. Um, so there's a huge amount of research that has gone into this book. And it's really in, in a very fascinating book because it's combining essentially science and history and giving us a bit more of an accurate and coherent and cohesive picture of some of the most important events in human history and how the mosquito has really altered the course of our own history and uh, kept our population in check, apparently, as well. So I'm really pleased uh, to welcome via Skype Timothy C. Weingard. Hi there, Timothy. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. Thank you for having me. It's absolutely a pleasure to have you on and um, to talk about this fantastic book. It's um, really fascinating reading every page. There's just so many things that I'm surprised and delighted by um, and sometimes shocked, I've got to say. Uh, Let's talk a bit about the mosquito and some of the stats that you bring in at the beginning to kind of um, I guess, emphasize the significance of this insect and perhaps why it has been discounted for so long. Um, I'll read a few out to get us going. Um, but you really highlight the fact that the mosquito has killed more people than any other cause of death in human history and that statistical extrapolation situates mosquito-inflicted deaths approaching half of all humans that have ever lived, which is an estimate estimated 52 billion people from a total of 108 billion throughout human history, which is 200,000 years. Um, How did you get to this point where you as a historian, who I know you focus on a range of periods of history in your own writing and research and teaching, how did you get to this point where you realised the mosquito was such an important player of history um, and yet has really been neglected? Well, I think for some of my other books dealing with um, Indigenous peoples globally, I've written quite a few books dealing with uh, Indigenous peoples all over the world, including Australia. I had come across malaria and yellow fever um, in my research for my previous books, but really after my last book, um, I sat down with my dad, who's an emergency doctor back home in, in Canada, and he kept saying, your next book's got to be on disease. So I started down the rabbit hole, kind of putting some puzzle pieces together and just kept coming across, you know, specific terms throughout history relating to, to malaria, which has been the scourge of humanity uh, across our relatively brief existence. And the more research I did, the more puzzle pieces I put on the table. And this very clear picture started to emerge of uh, of just how much this tiny little animal has impacted and shaped and steered um, the course of human 
human history since since day one, and even our hominid ancestral evolution in Africa and as far back as the dinosaurs. So it was just astounding once I went further down the rabbit hole um, in some of these statistics, obviously, that come from, from various sources, and they are estimates, but um, and I was just shocked. And so I had a wonderful time digging into all the research over, you know, two and a half, three years, and then writing for another year and a half, two years. So it, it was quite the journey and quite the wild ride. And and I was surprised, just as you said in the introduction, um, with some of the things I found in my research about um, this this pesky little bug sticking her nose um, literally everywhere in, in human history. Mm. And we'll get to some of those examples in a moment. Um, I was surprised that at the beginning of the book, you highlight that there are actually a few places in the world where mosquitoes do not exist or they, they don't live there. And some of them are probably the, the coldest, like Antarctica and Iceland. Um, but there are also a handful of French Polynesian micro islands that apparently do not have the um, pleasure of, of mosquito habitation. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think that is, that mosquitoes aren't in some of those um, places in, in the world? Well, I think that the first point is that only females bite and they need the blood of, of humans in a zoological Noah's Ark of other animals. They bite every animal going um, to, to simply um, grow and mature their eggs. So if there isn't the animals to eat there, whether it's birds, because birds are a, a big one for mosquitoes or, or other mammals, uh, reptiles, they simply can't survive to procreate. So um, Iceland is a unique ecosystem. So that's part of it. Um, and, and Antarctica obviously is just too cold. Um, and, and barren of, of most animals. Uh, and some of these really, really tiny um, islands in the Pacific, it's the same reason. There's just nothing to feed on, so they can't get blood to, to grow and mature their eggs and reproduce, which they're, they're designed and programmed to do. Mm. And, I mean, when you describe in detail exactly what a mosquito does when they suck your blood, um, if you were queasy, you might start to get quite anxious and um, sickened by what exactly they do. It, but it's also quite impressive and very sophisticated in terms of um, their biology and how they've evolved to actually um, suck out a human's blood um, and then deposit or get rid of the kind of water element of the blood so they're only getting the concentrated um kind of material that they need in order to breed. Could you share with us like the process of, of a mosquito, um, you know, finding a human, becoming a like what attracts them to that human, um, which I also found fascinating and what, what they do. <laughs> Um, so there's a lot of mythology out there of why mosquitoes prefer some people over <clears throat> over others. Um, and unfortunately, about 85% of what makes a person alluring or less alluring to mosquitoes is is hardwired in their genetic circuit board. So you're you're kind of out of luck if if you drew the short straw genetically. The big one is blood type. Uh, blood type O is the vintage of choice over A or B or their blend. Um, how much carbon dioxide? somebody naturally respires carbon dioxide is, is a mosquito magnet and they can smell carbon dioxide from over 200 feet away uh, how much lactic acid and other chemicals people have in and on their skin 
Um, so it, it's a whole slew of things that are essentially genetic traits. Um, there's no tr- truth to they prefer uh, blondes and redheads over people with darker hair, that they prefer women over men, um, that the more leathery or darker your skin is, the safer you are. Those those are all myths, uh, as well as this whole vitamin B12. I, I've been reading about that. If you take vi- B, vitamin B supplements, it wards off mosquitoes. That's been debunked medically in numerous studies. And, and while we don't know the reason for this one and some of your listeners may get upset uh they do prefer beer drinkers and we don't know (laughs) why um (laughs) so uh and applied fragrances attract mosquitoes they hunt by both sight and smell smell specifically that carbon dioxide and then also wearing bright colors attracts mosquitoes so there's a slew of things but at the end of the day most of it is genetic specifically that blood type o um, so they smell your carbon dioxide, your lactic acid, your bright colors, or you, you know your, your beer, um, and they'll land and you know do a little reconnaissance of your of your skin to find that blood vessel. And essentially, to to simplify it, they have six needles. Um, two of them are mandible cutting blades that shift back and forth, much like an electric carving knife. Uh, they saw into your skin. Two other needles uh, are retractors. They open um, open the skin and hold it open for the fifth needle, which is a straw, essentially, that sucks um, three to five milligrams of blood. All the while, the sixth needle goes in, which uh, pumps in saliva, which contains an anticoagulant and, and a little bit of an analgesic uh, so you don't feel her biting and to prevent the blood from clotting at that puncture site. And this is the tube, that sixth tube, that saliva tube, that also delivers the pathogens into um, humans and, and a ton of other animals. Um, so there's no actual blood exchanged in the bite, so mosquitoes can't transmit HIV or anything like that because there's no they're two separate functioning tubes for uh, the sucking the blood and inserting the anticoagulant saliva. So it's important to remember that it's not the mosquito uh, itself. The mosquito is harmless. It's the um, catalog of pathogens that she transmits during the bite uh, or these pathogens that essentially hitch a free ride via the vector of the mosquito. Mm. And um, it's really fascinating that it's always a female doing this biting um, and that you write that male mosquitoes don't bite and that for them, their world revolves around two things, nectar and sex. And that reminds me of an interview I did about bees, which was very similar in the sense that the men were really there to provide the kind of sperm and to enable the um, females to to procreate and be the leaders and the important actors and the men were kind of like the side players. I find it fascinating that in this book and, you know, in human history, so much of history is um, boiled down to great men, quote unquote, and the the genius (laughs) that they have in their various, you know, events and wars. And yet it's actually females who seem to be almost the most influential. Yes, the the male mosquito gets off easy, um, as as you mentioned. Their world revolves around um, essentially procreating and, and nectar. They drink nectar, not blood. Um, so they do pollinate flowers um, to some extent uh, and other plants, but not like bees, for example, as as you just mentioned. They're they're huge pollinators, and it's a worry globally that mm-hmm. the the bee populations are 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 in decline. Um, so male mosquitoes. What else is interesting about the reproduction is that. Um, 
males will mate frequently in their lifetime. Females will only mate once. Essentially, they mate once and they store the sperm and and deliver it piecemeal for each separate birthing of eggs. It's actually quite another marvelous evolutionary adaptation of, of the mosquito itself. So the animal itself is fascinating in her influence um, on history and defeating many great men, as you mentioned, um, mm. from time immemorial is quite fascinating. And there's a slew of examples, obviously, uh, and a catalog of examples in the book, um, chronologically from the dinosaurs all the way to, to present day. Yes, and um, just to kind of close out our discussion on uh, procreation and breeding, it's interesting to note that a lot of people here might associate mosquitoes with rivers or, you know, big pools of water. Um, However, you really show that you don't need much water at all to be able or for a female mosquito to be able to lay her eggs and for them to flourish and uh, mature. Uh, It depends on the species of mosquito. There's roughly 3,500, give or take, species of mosquitoes on the planet. Uh, And it's also important to keep in mind as we go further in the story that very few of these mosquito species are vectors for disease. It's a a handful of certain species that that transmit or vector these diseases or these pathogens. Uh, But no, some mosquitoes prefer salt water, some fresh water, some brackish water, some don't care at all. uh, And they definitely don't need much it can be a tiny little pool in a backyard toy a tonka truck or a used tire or they a crushed beer can they certainly don't need a lot um, and as i said the females are just programmed to procreate and carry on their species and, and they are seemingly very good at it mm. and in terms of evolution that's something that you focus on and how different species have evolved um, one of the examples that you give is the blitz air raids in london in 1940 and 41, uh, where Germans um, bombed London and there were a population of Culex mosquitoes who were confined to the air raid tunnel shelters in the underground tube, which I'm sure many people who visited are familiar with. Um, What was the significance of that kind of adaptation that this kind of um, breed or population of mosquitoes undertook? Well, they were trapped, so you know they came down into the the tube in the air raid shelters with the the hardy uh, London civilians during the Blitz and, and the Nazi bombing, um, and they learned to feed on on rats and mice very quickly instead of birds uh, and humans above ground. And within 50 years, they adapted into a completely different species than their above ground um, parents. Uh, and actually, they're unable to breed with each other. So it's an evolutionary marvel just how quickly this happened. And the, the um, director of the British Entomology Society joked that in another 50 years, each separate line in the tube will have its own Culex mosquito populations <laughs> and new species. Um, but it just shows how quickly they can adapt and evolve to survive, which is one of the reasons we've we've had such a hard time uh, defeating the mosquitoes, specifically the malaria-carrying Anopheles mosquitoes. Um, They adapt so quickly to insecticides and other um, frontline weapons that we throw their way um, and seemingly have always been able to circumvent uh, our our best methods of extermination to survive. Um, And as I keep saying, just like any other species, including ourselves, 
Um, they want to survive as just as much as we do, so they adapt. And we see humans in our early evolution adapting to what must have been cataclysmic rates of malaria in Africa with genetic or hereditary genetic shields, such as sickle cell and thalassemia, Duffy anti-negativity, to circumvent um, malaria. So it, it, it's a it, it's been a you know give and take battle for as long as human beings have been on this planet. Indeed, and malaria is, you know, a very, very significant portion of this part, this history of the mosquito. And as you write, malaria is the unsurpassed, unsurpassed scourge of humankind, and that almost three hundred million people at the moment are unlucky enough annually to contract malaria from the Anopheles mosquito, and um, it's kind of scary to think that although there have been some really great gains in treatment for malaria um, and prevention that we're still um, battling with this on such a large scale Uh, malaria the mosquito transmit transmits various pathogens so filariasis often referred to as elephant Titus, but that's not even correct. It's elephantiasis, which is a worm uh, transmitted by the mosquito that causes the engorgement of the limbs and genitals. Um, and 120 million people a year still contract filariasis from the filarial worm. Um, so a canine heartworm in dogs is caused by mosquitoes. And then there's the virus class, which is the biggest one, which is yellow fever, um, dengue, West Nile, and some unique ones in Australia with the Ross River virus, uh, Murray Valley encephalitis virus, mm. the Barma Forest virus, and your own unique version of West Nile virus in Australia, the Cungin virus. Um, so the virus class is by far the biggest. Uh, and then malaria is in its own category. It's a, a protozoan parasite. It's a very unique parasite that requires both the mosquito and then another host um, to procreate and reproduce essentially. So part of its reproduction takes place in the mosquito and part of it takes place in another host that could be human or a whole swath of other animals, reptiles, amphibians, birds, uh, all the great apes have malaria. So there's over 400 types of malaria on the planet, five affecting um, human beings. So it, which is again, why it's so hard to defeat malaria. It's not a virus in the traditional sense where we can, you know, uh, um, create a vaccine. For example, yellow fevers had a vaccine uh, since the 1930s, and it's actually the only one of the virus class that has a vaccine. So we've been trying to, to defeat the malaria parasite, and we've made some strides, certainly with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, since 2000, the World Health Organization. But uh, malaria continues to, to, to stalk humanity. Uh, and as you mentioned, upwards of 300 million people a year contract malaria. Yeah, and um, and certainly it's something to to focus more on. I'm really impressed with your knowledge of Australian um, viruses because <laughs> I I was I had to um, find out more about that more recently and was shocked to know about the Ross River virus and the Barma Forest viruses, which are really quite. Um, debilitating for people and um, affect them for many years, even after the kind of main uh, part of the virus has finished. Um, Yeah, it certainly does knock people around a lot. Um, Let's talk about 
dinosaurs um, and then we can get into humans. I'm really interested because you certainly address this idea that there are sometimes competing versions of um, history and what really was the deciding factor as to why dinosaurs are no longer here and um, left the earth. And certainly there is an important element to it of, um, you know, that massive event um, where, you know, they were essentially destroyed by, was it an asteroid? Yeah, the meteor crashed meteor. 65, roughly 65 million years ago um, off the coast of the Yucatan Peninsula uh, in the, what is now the touristy part of, of Mexico. Uh, and that certainly did happen. Um, the crater's about the size of the state of Vermont in, in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so the insect-borne disease theory doesn't supplant or replace um, the meteor collapse model. That absolutely happened, and it was the final final death knell, if you will, for dinosaur populations. Um, but we know mosquitoes have been around for at least 200 to 190 million years ago, so the early Jurassic period, and some research pushes back mosquitoes to 225 million years ago. Um, so we know for sure they were around during, you know, the reign of the dinosaurs. Uh, and malaria in some form is, is is roughly 400 million years old. It started off as an aquatic algae and it still contains uh, vestiges of photosynthesis, actually, which is quite amazing. So we know that these things were around and looking at, you know, dinosaur bones and, and, and coprolite, the, the, the petrified feces, uh, we can see insect-borne worms, viruses, and parasites um, similar to malaria and yellow fever. Um, So this theory has been gaining traction for the last 10, 15 years. Um, and some, you know, theorists support the idea that roughly 70% of dinosaur species regionally were either extinct or endangered by the time it actually does hit 65 million years ago. Yeah, and um, let's talk a little bit about one of my favourite uh, parts of the world, Scotland. Who <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm pro independence. Uh, it would be great to see Scotland become independent, given their. Um, desire to remain in the EU, but that's another <coughs> subject. Uh, but I was so shocked to, and surprised to know that your um, book also covers the very important uh, influence that mosquitoes had in Scotland not um, being an independent nation. Can you share with us what happened in, I guess, a more condensed version because there is a lot of um, back and forth? Sure. This was actually one of the more fascinating stories and I had to 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 f- find a lot of sources to corroborate this story because I, I I couldn't believe it but sure enough there was numerous sources that I cobbled together. Um, long story short, in the late 1600s, um, Scotland was an independent country, and it being badgered by her, her more wealthy English neighbor to the south for unification in Scotland, obviously refused. Um, but the problem was is that Scotland couldn't take part in the uh, England. A colonial or mercantilist trade with with um, in, uh, English colonies. So Scotland was coming out of a huge recession. There had been failed oat and barley um, harvests, so they were in a famine, and Scotland was in a pretty dire situation. So the idea was that Scotland could get wealthy, um, you know, erecting colonies of their own in the Americas. So roughly, um, you know, twenty five to fifty percent of all Scottish capital available in an already cash-strapped in 
you know, starving, famine, uh, and recession-stricken country was dumped into a scheme called the Darien Scheme, and they aimed to set up a colony in Panama. Um, so they sent over boatloads of Scottish settlers uh, with their Bibles and their woolen blankets and woolen sweaters and socks uh, and a printing press to record all the transactions they were going to have being at the center of trade, between, you know, the, the, the isthmus there. Uh, and the colony was absolutely shredded um, by malaria and, and yellow fever. Um, and it floundered and it failed. And with it, all of um, Scottish capital that was pumped into this this colonial venture uh, sank in Panama or was bitten by mosquitoes of Panama. It left Scotland in, in absolute dire bankruptcy. So England agreed to pay off the Scottish debt uh, if Scotland would surrender its sovereignty and sign the 1707 Acts of Union, which they did. So um, Scotland surrendered its sovereignty due to um, malarious and, and yellow fever-ridden mosquitoes in the wilds of Panama. And when I, this story just was shocking. Um, and so um, Robbie Burns, the, the famous poet, chided the um, bought and sold for English gold what a parcel of rogues in a nation is what he says about the Scottish politicians selling out Scotland, Scotland's independence after this failed Darien scheme. It's shocking, really. I, I still can't believe it, to be honest, um, <laughs> <laughs> that it could have. It's just changed the, the whole course of history. Um, before we get to current day and genetic editing and, and that element of the book, I just wanted to um, get your perspective, given there are so many points in history that the mosquito has influenced. <laughs> were there any that are beyond the Scottish example that were your favourite or that really stuck out as being surprising to you? Like, did you have a, a certain favourite when you were doing the research? Uh, the Scotland story was one that, as I said, it it, it was mind-boggling once mm. I, I researched that one. So that was one of them for sure. Another one was uh, was a family connection. Uh, I'm born and raised in Canada. I've been in Colorado for about um, eight years. Uh, my wife is born and raised here, and and her grandfather fought in the Second World War for for the Americans, and he got malaria twice. Um, during the war. Now, the first one was at Anzio when the Allied uh, forces landed at Anzio to outflank the, the German line. Um, and the second time was at Dachau when his unit liberated the Dachau concentration camp. And um, Rex died, um, her grandpa Rex died a, a year ago, but before he died, I got to tell him how he contracted malaria. Uh, and he had no idea. He knew he had had malaria twice, but didn't understand how he could have gotten malaria at Anzio and again in you know southern Germany and near Munich with Dachau. So long story short, the Pontine marshes surrounding Rome, uh, 310 square miles of marshes have, have safeguarded essentially Rome uh, to allow for the creation of the Roman Empire from foreign invasion, whether that be the Carthaginians, uh, the, the Visigoths, the Huns, the Vandals, the Gauls. Um, so uh, Mussolini actually drained the Pontine marshes successfully prior to the Second World War and cut malaria rates in Italy by over 90%. So when the Allies were planning to land at Anzio, the Nazis purposefully reflooded the Pontine marshes uh, to rejuvenate malarious mosquitoes as a premeditated act of biological warfare, uh, and it worked. And my wife's grandfather Rex contracted um, malaria at Anzio um, as a result of this Nazi premeditated biological warfare using mosquitoes, uh, which was an astounding story. And then he got malaria again at Dachau, and, and um, Dachau was the head of the Nazi tropical medicine program, so they were doing horrific experiments on, on Jewish inmates uh, and prisoners 
um, Jewish prisoners there um, with malaria and yellow fever and other experimental, you know, medications. And so when his unit um, liberated Dachau, he was bitten by one of these experimental mosquitoes and, and got malaria for the second time. Um, and he had no idea how this happened until I told him personally in the spring of 2017, essentially what I just just told you and your audience. Uh, and it, it was kind of amazing to lift the curtain or pull the curtain back for not only Rex, but for his wife and my, and my wife and her entire family of how this all happened. And he was 96 years old and he was sitting in his, you know, armchair drinking a scotch after dinner when I told him this story. And he, he looked at me with this kind of stoic grin and just looked at me and said, Tim, that makes sense. <laughs> well, it's, um, I mean, it's bad and horrible, but it's almost like what you would class as evil genius to be doing something which now is utilized all the time in terms of biological warfare and was still kind of in its early stages in World War II. It's shocking to, to discover that that's what they were doing. Yes, it was uh, certainly shocking. And then to have that family connection made yeah. it even more real. And certainly in the book, using Rex's narrative um, for the Second World War helps kind of put a personal face to to that story and the story of the, the horrific experiments at Dachau on the, the Jewish prisoners. So um, that was something that I found fascinating, and again, being able to kind of share with with Rex and his whole family how this all happened, um, you know, and he died about a year later at 97. So uh, that was was interesting, um, and certainly I think a little bit rewarding for himself and mm. his larger family as well. Yeah, indeed, because you would often think, well, oh, perhaps I'm just really unlucky if you, you weren't aware of what the cause might have been to to have it twice. Right, and there was. Unfortunately, the reflooding of the Pontine Marshes as an act of biological warfare backfired in a way, too, because the Germans also contracted <laughs> malaria at Anzio as well. So it wasn't just the Allies, but it was also intended by Hitler to be punishment for the Italian civilians who had just switched sides in the war as well. And he wanted to punish them with, with malaria. And he makes this quite clear uh, to punish the Italian civilians first by any means necessary. Gosh, I'm glad that we've um, since moved slightly from that period of history, but it is still, as you shared just there, it's still recent and there are people who are alive who were still involved in World War II. So um, it's really, it is great to have that human connection. Let's um, talk about current day and genome editing and sequencing. This is only a fairly recent event that we were able to sequence the human genome and other plant genomes um, and I was really fascinated about this idea and um, did a little bit of research after to see what the scientific community was saying about it in, with this idea of CRISPR, C-R-I-S-P-R, and the fact that perhaps uh, given mosquitoes have been um, so damaging to human society, some people have proposed um, a range of solutions, one of which would be to just wipe out mosquitoes and another of which would be to change the mosquito's genetic makeup so that it doesn't pass on these types of um, pathogens. And, of course, you say the latter option would be preferred by a number of people. Um, but I'm interested in this idea of what the mosquito offers 
the ecosystem and um, how vital or not it is and uh, what your thoughts are on this kind of proposal in a, in a bit of a brave new world scenario. <laughs> um, yeah, I need to start with the fact going back to what I mentioned earlier, which is an important point, is that of the 3,500 mosquito species, give or take on the planet, there's only a handful, relatively speaking, of those 3,500 uh, that are capable of vectoring or transmitting disease. So it's important to note that nobody is promoting the eradication of all mosquitoes from the face of the planet. Um, That's not what what anybody's promoting. So we need to be very clear. It would be targeting very specific species of the Anopheles uh, mosquitoes that transmit malaria and the Aedes mosquitoes that transmit uh, a swath of those viruses that I talked about and then the Culex mosquito as well, certain species. So it's not a, a wholesale eradication of mosquitoes. Um, mosquitoes, I mean, we don't know 100% that they serve an absolute or, or irreplaceable function. But as I mentioned, since the males do drink nectar and don't bite, um, they do pollinate plants. And I actually got an email from the um, the president of the American Orchid Association after he had read my book saying that if we wiped out mosquitoes, uh, certain orchids are only pollinated by mosquitoes, so that we'd, we'd lose a handful of orchid species as well. Wow. And he was very adamant that we shouldn't do that, uh, being a lover of the flowers. <laughs> so um, uh, they do serve as a food source for other animals. So, for example, certain fish, specifically trout and salmon, um, eat, eat the eggs that float on the top of the water or the little caterpillars uh, that the eggs hatch into that skim along the, the top of the water. Uh, bats eat a lot of mosquitoes. Um, so bats are actually a very, very important part of the ecosystem. And, and they're also getting a kind of a bad rap lately, um, pardon the, the slang. But um, bats gorge themselves on mosquitoes. So where you see thriving bat populations, you also see lower mosquito populations. So they do serve a, a function. And, and I don't I don't have an opinion on this, but obviously they've been humanity's most deadliest predator across our existence. So they may control our act as a Malthusian check against uncontrolled human population growth. Now, I'm not going to pick sides on that one, but that's certainly an argument that's been put forth. So with the CRISPR gene editing technology that came out in 2012 out of of Berkeley with with a woman named Dr. Jennifer Doudna, it's absolutely fascinating. And Jurassic Park, if you will, is real. Um, We have the ability to intrude on natural selection and replace the DNA of any animal, humans, mosquitoes, or otherwise, with desired DNA, uh, thereby permanently altering the genome of, of that creature. And it's, you know, it's a bit like opening Pan- Pandora's box. And it, it certainly, as you mentioned, a brave new world. It's, it is scary and it's um, fascinating all at the same time. Um, as far as mosquitoes goes, there's two avenues with. CRISPR. And one is to CRISPR mosquitoes in a lab, uh, release them into a, uh, into the wild, these spe- only the specific species that, that vector disease, mind you, um, and thereby when they mate, 
their offspring would be all male and fertile or stillborn, essentially, or, or you know, wiping out that mosquito species. Now, the other avenue with CRISPR is to CRISPR these specific vectoring species with something called a gene drive or a selfish gene that would be passed down their bloodlines, uh, pardon the pun. So a hereditary gene that would make these species simply harmless by making them incapable of actually vectoring or transmitting these pathogens, thereby bringing down the pathogen itself, but not the mosquito species. Interesting. And um, in terms of the ideas around this, that's obviously one non-chemical way of addressing a situation. And the alternative which uh, many councils and governments have used and even individuals have been using is to use um, quite harmful chemicals historically to spray certain areas where the mosquitoes have laid their eggs. And um, you highlight the fact that they're these mosquitoes really mature very quickly, like almost within a week um, you go from being an egg to um, a fully blown flying mosquito. So obviously spraying is, you know, not that ideal and it also has some really significant environmental and human consequences. What was your um, understanding, before we um, have to head off, of the chemical approach and um, I'm thinking of examples like DDT and chloroquine um, which were used after the Second World War? Well, I think when we look at the, the, the insecticides to, to spray chemicals to, you know, eradicate mosquitoes, uh, they evolve so quickly that, you know, again, they're still here, 110 trillion of them on the planet. Um, they, they evolve so quickly to become immune to these insecticides. So, for example, when DDT was um, commercially available to farmers as of 1946, they basically, you know, paved paradise to use Joni Mitchell's vernacular with DDT. Uh, and it, depending on the species of mosquitoes, it took anywhere from two to 20 years for the those mosquito species to become immune to DDT. So the banning of DDT had more to do with it, its failure and that it didn't work anymore than any political clout um, that, you know, Rachel Carson wrote in Silent Spring uh, or any large-scale political environmental movement. It just simply didn't work. And, and we have to be careful here, too, is that using DDT for residual spraying around houses specifically to surgically target mosquitoes was not what caused the environmental degradation. It was the carpeting agricultural use by farmers that created so much harm and environment, environmental degradation to other animals and then eventually entering, entering our own human food chain and causing cancers. So um, that's an important point. And again, with chloroquine or any other anti-malarial, the problem is, is that the malaria parasite adapts so quickly too. Um, by the time we do our human trials, we've exposed the malaria parasite to these chemicals or these drugs. So by the time it's made convert commercially available, uh, the parasites had a long time to shapeshift to be able to circumvent these drugs, rendering them obsolete so quickly. And we've seen this over and over and over again with all these anti-malarials, including chloroquine, which is why malaria is still so, um, you know, proficient and, and widespread across certain parts of the planet. 
Timothy, I cannot thank you enough for what has been such a fascinating discussion and I feel like I've learned so much and I can't look at the world the same way again. So I appreciate what you've done with this book, which must have taken, as you said, a, a while to research and to to really check into because of the wondrous and amazing kind of stories that you've uncovered through history. So congratulations and thank you so much for giving us your time today. Of course, my pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking with Professor of History and Political Science at Colorado Mesa University, Mr. Timothy C. Wingard, and he has been the author of The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator, which is published through Text Publishing. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.